We come this afternoon to the last of our studies on the topic of making repentance clear, and we come to the fifth of five primary principles extracted from Daniel chapter 9 and his beautiful display of clear repentance. I will remind you of the previous four principles so that we can have them recorded for the edification of our hearers, and then we will get right to the fifth principle. So once again, the first four are the following. Number one, biblical repentance understands by the books the characteristics and consequences of sin. Number two, biblical repentance clears things up with God first through personal conviction and private petition. Number three, biblical repentance is clear about who owes who. Who is the debtor and who is the redeemer? The fourth principle that we covered last Sunday is the following. Biblical repentance makes a clear turn toward the truth. This afternoon's principle will be extracted out of the last section of Daniel's intercessions as they're given in Daniel chapter 9. They are extracted from the 15th through the 19th verses. Before I read those verses, I will give you the statement of the principle, and then we're going to look at a section of Scripture that presents a contrast to the proper way to live out the principle we'll be investigating this afternoon. So we will look at a bad example that does not live within the principle we're reflecting on. And the principle is this. Biblical repentance clarifies our commitments. Biblical repentance clarifies our commitments. Now, it might surprise you to learn that one can have a form of repentance without carrying with it a commitment to undo the evil that the sin that they had committed brought about in their own lives or indeed into the community. Recall with me that Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 is certainly repenting of his own sense of sinfulness, for though we don't have the record of Daniel's sins, we know that there were things in his own life that were no doubt under conviction, and uh, so that's there, but he was also simultaneously, and I don't know that he was even sorting it out into strict categories of my sin over against Israel's sin. He wanted to see the work of God prosper, and he knew, like Isaiah stated in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I am a man of unclean lips before the presence of a perfectly holy God, no matter how relatively good my life has been over against the life of my brothers and sisters. Before the face of God, I am a man of unclean lips. But he also realized, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So Daniel is exercising himself 
in communal repentance, that is, representing the people of Israel in his own heart. Not so much that he was asked to do so, but when you come before God, if there's sin in your family, if there's sin in your church, if there's sin in your nation, in your community, within your friendships, then you ought to come before God and repent for that which you are personally convicted about, but also those convictions that are more directed to the public status, that is to say, the sins of the community. We truly need to enter into those as well. And I trust you see that Daniel has been doing that. Now, what I'm saying is it is possible to have a form of repentance that is absent a commitment to undo the evil that the individual or the community or the family, you get the point, has introduced into their circumstances and has thereby hindered the good, the progress, the success, the prosperity of God's king and kingdom. I give you an example of this false form of repentance, this repentance that is by no means clear from Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter, and the 3rd through 5th verses. It's taken from the life of Judas. And you might be surprised to see how this plays out. You know that Judas betrayed Jesus. You know that he returned evil for good. You know that Judas was seeking after his own interests. And as a consequence, he made himself accessible to Satan's influence. He opened up his heart to Satan's suggestions. And he ended up betraying innocent blood, the holy and just one. We read in verse 3 that after Jesus was brought to trial before Pontius Pilate, And Pilate himself said, I find nothing worthy of death in this man. But Judas recognized that Jesus was going to nonetheless be condemned to death and crucified. We read in verse 3, Then Judas, which had betrayed Jesus, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. It may seem obvious to you if I state that this was not a genuine repentance, simply because you know how the person Judas features in the biblical record. You already have it concluded in your minds that Judas is the son of perdition. He's apostate. He's not going to be in heaven. All of that, as mournful as that is, is indeed true. But you should look more closely at what transpires here so you can discern the principles as to why Judas' repentance was not genuine. Because after all, it says that he repented himself. 
we are further told that he took the 30 pieces of silver that were given to him as a payment for his participation in bringing Jesus to the authorities, which was indeed betraying Christ, but it was a transaction that he had entered into with, let's say, the Sanhedrin. He brought those pieces of silver back. He brought the benefits, as it were, of the sin that he committed back to the chief priests and elders. And then he confessed his sin and said very clearly, I have betrayed innocent blood. The real hint in terms of these three verses that we're reading that Judas' repentance is not a clear repentance, it is not a genuine repentance, is perhaps first given in the Greek term that is used for repentance, metamelomai. It could certainly stand for a form of genuine repentance, but I'll simply relay to you that metamelomai is more in the direction of changing your emotions over against metanoia, which is changing your mind, changing your view, changing your processing of what you have done, and coming to the conclusion that you have sinned in terms of how you understand it in your thoughts and in your mind and in your conclusions. You see, with Judas, it's more a matter of regret, his emotions changed as he saw this one that he had been so close to for so long now, three years or so, so consistently kind was Jesus to Judas, and yet nonetheless Judas betrayed him, and the emotion is changing in Judas' life in that he is now regretting. Now this can lead to full repentance, of course. And when you see Judas bringing the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests themselves and engaging with them and stating with his own mouth, I betrayed the innocent blood. If things had continued in that direction, we might have had genuine repentance. But the thing that shows us that this is not genuine repentance is because... Judas does not fulfill, among other things, but he does not fulfill this fifth principle, as we will see demonstrated in Daniel's life. Judas does not clarify his commitments as a part of his repentance. For verse 5 says, after he brought the 30 pieces of silver back, to the chief priest as they were in the temple and told them that he sinned, they said to him something very interesting. Essentially, what they're saying is, you may be repentant, but we are not. You may be leading down a path toward pursuing a godly, righteous position before God, but we are not. That's captured by their statement, what is that to us? You might feel conviction for betraying innocent blood, but we don't. We're not walking down this path toward repentance with you. So they go on to say, effectively, see thou to it. In other words, this 
is on your shoulders if anything is going to be resolved. Now, I understand that they are really just being cavalier and indifferent when they say, what is that to us? See thou to it. They're just dismissing Judas because they got what they want. They'll take the 30 pieces of silver. Thank you very much. But in terms of thinking about what they have done, that's not even remotely in their hearts. Their hearts are adamant, stone, and unrepentant. But nonetheless, the language, well, it certainly was what they said, but the sovereign God allowed their lips to speak these things. And it's amazing how even the statements of sinful men can instruct those that have ears to hear and understand how the heart actually works. So they say to Judas, it's your job to fix this. That's effectively what they're saying. See thou to it. And what I want to point out to you is as far as it goes with respect to Judas, that's precisely what he should be doing. He should be making a commitment to undo the evil that he brought into the program and to the person of the Lord Jesus, the program of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the progress of God's kingdom. Judas had interrupted, as it were, all that Jesus was accomplishing. I understand that from God's sovereign overarching will, he was fulfilling what the eternal counsels of God had foreordained. We can state that, and that's a beautiful truth. But you must understand with me that it is also the case that Judas' sin interrupted the beauty of Jesus' ministry and life. I hope you can understand how that is true. And it becomes Judas' responsibility if he has clear repentance to clarify that now my commitment is toward what Jesus was about before I interrupted what he was doing. In other words, my commitment is to undo the evil that I brought into Jesus' life and now to join him and join his program and join the purposes of God through him and put my entire heart into it as opposed to saying I'm sorry and then just standing off on the side and hoping that it all works out well or saying I'm sorry but then just going off onto some other pursuit that is not directly in line with committing ourselves to the will of God that we have sinned against. And so what I'm saying to you is the following. When in verse 5 we read that Judas cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself as mournful and solemn and melancholy as that reads off the page, it is also the testimony of a person that did not take up his responsibilities and commit himself to Christ about whom he just said, I betrayed the innocent blood. I got this whole breakdown in the work and plan of God going. I'm the central figure that brought this sin into the purposes of God. I betrayed Jesus. I betrayed the innocent blood. It is not sufficient to simply take the 30 pieces of silver and bring it back. Someone might say, is he not? 
not manifesting an interest in the furtherance of God's work and temple? For after all, 30 pieces of silver could be used to beautify the temple. Evidently, Judas is interested in the purpose and plan of God. He's no longer looking in his, for his own interest. He's offering 30 pieces of silver to help the temple to be beautified and to help bring forward the purposes of God. Well, of course, all of that thinking is nonsense because all he was doing was returning what he stole in the first place. He should never have had those 30 pieces of silver in his pockets to start with. So the fact that he returns them, you might think, in keeping with some of the other language in the passage, if it was some other story and it wasn't Judas and you didn't know that ahead of time he fits into the category of an unsaved man, you might be scratching your head and thinking, well, it says he repented, he confessed his sins, and he brought back the money that he got through a sinful arrangement. He's trying to restore that which he obtained through sinful measures. But dear brothers and sisters, what you also see here is that Judas' heart does not begin to think, what can I do to interrupt this process that is leading to Jesus' crucifixion? From Judas' side, it involves the idea of Jesus' ministry being brought to a stop. The beauty of Jesus' teaching, His healings, His beautiful person, His ministry to Israel, the Messiah's progress, the entrance of God's kingdom. From Judas' side, He doesn't understand what the crucifixion is going to accomplish. You can't state that he understands that and therefore he realizes, yes, I have sinned, but I must allow the crucifixion to happen so that Israel can be saved. That's not in his mind. You're seeing a man here who is confessing to have sinned is additionally bringing back that which he obtained through his sinful behavior and then simply departing and taking his life, checking out the ultimate form of I'm not going to add anything else positive to this story. I'm going to eliminate myself entirely such that I am not going to be involved in seeking to see that Jesus' sentence is dismissed I'm not going to be involved in perhaps planning some sort of rescue mission to get Jesus from being crucified so that he can continue his ministry for the good of God's children, for the forwarding of God's kingdom. I hope you can understand, at least to some extent, the line of thought that I'm sharing with you. Judas does not declare his commitment for the purpose and plan that Jesus was all about. He is the one who got faint-hearted with respect to what Christ was doing. Christ did nothing to him to bring about these feelings that ended up in betraying Christ. It was not Jesus' fault. He was innocent, as Judas himself states. But Judas does not follow his so-called repentance with a commitment to now put his back into the work of fixing the things that he did wrong and aligning himself with what Jesus is all about and forwarding Jesus' ministry. He simply repented, brought back what wasn't his to start with, and then he just checked out. I want you to compare that with what we read in Daniel chapter 9. 
It'll be helpful if we begin with how Daniel begins to express his repentance, as you will see that there's a spiritual pattern that manifests itself again and again in the Word of God, wherever repentance takes place, this principle that we are going to be stressing to your hearts. When Daniel begins to express himself before God in the emotion of genuine repentance, in the fifth verse, he says, We have sinned. Himself and the nation of Israel have sinned. And we have committed iniquity, and we have done wickedly, and we have rebelled, and we have departed from your precepts and from your judgments. Verse 5 is Daniel coming before Almighty God and experiencing the full thrust of personal conviction. There's a sense in which his entire soul is swallowed up in the moment with the conviction of his own sins and the sins of the community. That's all he can talk about. That is all he is bringing before God. And that is as it should be. There's no point in what we're going to discover becomes the case at the end of his session of genuine repentance. There's no point in focusing on other matters. For right now, the issue is in understanding a deep penetrating sense that we have sinned. And that's precisely what comes out in verse 5. You might have thought, by way of comparison, that Judas was in this place that Daniel is in, in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 5, when Judas, we're told, repents, he brings the 30 pieces of silver back, and he says, effectively, I have sinned, I have committed iniquity, I have done wickedly, I have rebelled, I have departed from Jesus, and he says, I betrayed the innocent blood. And so there's a similarity as far as that goes between verse 5 of Daniel 9 and Judas' actions. But what we're going to see take place in the closing section of Daniel's display of clear repentance, we're going to see that Judas has nothing of this. We're going to see that unlike Daniel, who clarifies his commitments, now that he's faced his own sin and he's confessed his sin, and he's been honest with his heart about his sin, and he, know, he knows that he betrayed the innocent God, so to speak, and his nation betrayed the innocent God. God did not do any of this against them. We will see that Daniel clarifies in his spirit what my commitments are and what I desire the commitments of the community to be. Read with me as we work through the 15th through the 19th verses of Daniel chapter 9. And now, O Lord our God, hast thou brought thy people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. It's interesting, Daniel at this point is reflecting on the first exodus. We're already beginning to see what is developing in Daniel's mind. In verse 5, and in the opening section of his session of repentance, once again, he is focusing on the sense of personal sin. And he's already gone through that. He's already faced his sins. 
He's already confessed with clarity what his sins are. He's already made a clear turn toward the truth. He's demonstrated an understanding of who's the debtor and who's the redeemer. He's gone through all of that. Now we're witnessing a transition in the direction of where are we now that repentance has been entered into and has been powerfully exercised through Daniel's heart, something that potentially could have been the case in Judas' life. Indeed, it was the case with someone else that was one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the potential apostles, and that is Peter. Remember with me, so you can understand what I'm saying here, Peter had denied the Lord Jesus as well. He had betrayed him with cursings. But the difference between Judas and Peter is not that one had a form of regret and the other did not. Say, Peter regretted his denial of Christ, but Judas did not. For we are told in Matthew 27 that Judas himself repented of what he had done. And it isn't even, for example, that Peter went out and went bitterly as such. Meaning, when we see Judas making his way back to the temple and casting those 30 pieces of silver on the ground and then going out and hanging himself, is that not some bitter form of emotion and regret? It obviously is. The difference is that after Peter wept bitterly, his weeping was genuine repentance as opposed to just a change of emotion and just regret for circumstances circumstances that entered into his life as a consequence of his sin. And how do we know that Peter had a clear repentance? Because Peter, after weeping bitterly, turns back to Jesus and he begins to put his shoulder and his energies and the focus of his heart into a renewed commitment to the cause of Christ. And as we know throughout Peter's life, his life is a beautiful display of a man who was completely committed to Jesus and to the success of his church. Peter dedicated his life to building Jesus' church and teaching Jesus' children and feeding Jesus' sheep because he loved the Lord Jesus so much. He loved Jesus' temple, as it were. He loved Jesus' church. He loved Jesus' Jerusalem. He loved Jesus' work in his kingdom and he put his whole heart into it. He clarified, now that I've repented, this is my commitment to build the very thing that in a sense I was walking away from by my denials and my wicked sin. Now he turns back and he says, I want to clarify. I declare myself for Jesus. I declare myself for his ecclesia. I declare myself for the work of God. God's kingdom, and I'm going to put my shoulders into this work in some sense to fix what I was threatening by my denial of the Lord Jesus Christ and my sins. What we see with Daniel is that Daniel is beginning to think about how God is going to get them out of their problem that they got themselves into through sin. How can we get this program going again? And he recognizes that he's praying before the one that already enacted an exodus out of Egypt. In many respects, Israel got themselves into Egyptian bondage. We can't trace out the fact of that statement presently, but that is true. 
Israel got themselves into Egyptian bondage, but God rescued them out of it in this mercy. And Daniel goes on to say, not only did you bring your people forth out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, you have gotten the renown. You are famous for this as at this day. There's still a record of what Yahweh did. The nations, if nobody else, that is to say, if Israel, is, if Israel, while they're in Babylon, through the consequences of their sins, can't remember how gracious God was in helping them out of their bondage, Daniel is saying, some people remember these acts of Almighty God. He is still famous for them. He goes on to say, but we messed up the relationship. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from, notice closely, thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, Mount Zion, because of our sins, and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. There's been an impact on the plan and the people and the place of Almighty God. There's been an impact because of our sins on the program of God and how successful it has been or unsuccessful in the way in which our sins have hindered what God was seeking to do. In other words, Israel should not be in Babylon. They ought to be in Israel, forwarding the plan of God, becoming a nation of priests so that they can be a light to the Gentiles. The program of God should be going forward. But now Daniel is looking back and saying, you brought us out of bondage. You were faithful to bring us into the promised land. We have sinned and messed this up. And he's already faced the depth of his personal awareness of his personal sins. And now he's declaring his commitment. You're seeing it come forth. I'm going to recommit myself to the purposes of God, to the people of God, to the place of God. And so he says in verse 17, now, therefore, O God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications and cause thy face to shine upon your sanctuary. You see here, he's not praying specifically for his personal blessing and deliverance and his personal experience of a clean hand and a pure heart. He is praying for the success of God's sanctuary because it's desolate, he says. For the Lord's sake, do this for the Lord's sake. I want to get back into the program of God. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations. No, not just our personal desolations, not just the way this has impacted my family, not just in the way that his chastening hand has maybe impacted my health or impacted my finances or impacted my marriage. He He's beyond that. He's declaring his commitment to the purposes of God, to the more central issues of what it is to be a Jew. And in our case, what is it to be a Christian? We should be committed to Jesus' church. We should be committed to the glory of Jesus' name. We should be committed to the progress of Jesus' kingdom. In what sense that can presently experience progress, namely through the glory and through the advancement
advancement of Jesus' church and through the work of his kingdom. And Daniel is saying, presently, these things are in a status of dissolution. Look in the 18th verse. He says, and the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness, but for thy great mercies. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing here is that Daniel is clarifying where his commitments are. Now that he has repented, one of the manifestations of genuine repentance in the lives of those who have disrupted the people of God, disrupted the church of God, disrupted the kingdom of God, disrupted the success of God's word. When you have fully repented, you will discover and experience a drive within you to clarify your commitments to all of these things that in the past you were not committed to, which is why we have sinned, why we have betrayed the Lord, why we have sought our own interests. Why is Israel in Babylon? Because they weren't locked into what God was doing in the earth and sought to do through the nation of Israel. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And now that they have sinned, they, as we're reading through Daniel, listen to the things that he is speaking about. He's speaking about your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, Mount Zion, your sanctuary, your people, your name. Biblical repentance is that which enables us to get with the program. That is another way of saying it clarifies our commitments. Recall with me, when Jesus gives us a model prayer, the very first line in Jesus' model prayer is that we should be concerned for the sanctity of God's name. He says, after this manner, pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May thy name be kept holy. That ought to be a central drive and commitment of we who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. But if God brings repentance to our souls and brings repentance to the churches, we will discover, we will be convicted like Daniel and Israel should be before his throne. And we should realize we have not been seeking the glory of God's name. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. We have departed from thy precepts. We have sought our own interests. We have committed ourselves to secondary concerns. We haven't put our heart and soul and loved your church and loved your people, loved Zion, if you will, loved the progress of your kingdom. Hence, our sins and hence the desolation of your church and your people. And when we have real repentance, we will commit ourselves to those things that we have been overlooking. We will experience a deep 
sense in our prayer life a deep voice from within us that is crying out, hallowed be thy name. I want to commit myself for the coming of your kingdom, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is so far, brothers and sisters, beyond what Judas was doing. Judas was more in the mode of having a conversation with the human participants in what had been the controversy in his life. There was Jesus, there was the chief priest, and there was Judas. And they had this little triage among themselves in which there was a lack of um, joy in Judas' life. And so he sort of betrayed Jesus to the chief priest, if you follow what I'm saying. And what Judas does is he thinks repentance is just a matter of coming back and sharing a few things about what he did wrong and trying to clarify the way in which he slandered Christ. And yes, I said that wrong and I did this wrong over here. But what you don't see in Judas' life is an awakening in his spirit and saying, I've been neglecting what Jesus has been all about for a number of months now. I haven't been locked in to what he's been doing. My heart has been fainting in spite of the fact that Jesus was manifesting a true commitment to Almighty God. As a result, I've effectively thrown a wrench into what the work of God is. And Daniel is experiencing the same thing with respect to the nation of Israel. He is effectively saying, we've messed up the plan of God. As a consequence, Jerusalem is in desolation. Mount Zion is in desolation. Your people are scattered. Now that I have repented and the nation of Israel who repents along with me, we are going to clarify our commitments. We're going to get back to the program. We're going to get with it, God. We're going to seek the hallowing of your name. We're going to seek the forwarding of your program. We're going to seek that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We see the same pattern in David's repentance as is given to us in Psalm 51. There was a Lutheran reformed expositor of the Bible that made this remark about Psalm 51 in its entirety. And because we're going to see this principle so beautifully displayed in Psalm 51, and I want your hearts to be drawn in to the brightness of these spiritual truths as they come out of the life of David and within this psalm, then I wish to read to you these remarks of Victorinus Stragelius. And he says, This psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book. That is the book of Psalms. That's his opinion. You don't have to have that, but capture what's in his heart. This psalm is the brightest gem in the entire book of Psalms and contains instructions so large, that is to say instructions so broad and deep and rich and full, and doctrines so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development, the full unfolding of what this bright gem of a psalm can teach our hearts. And I hope that we can enter into some of that beauty as we focus on how the principle that we're discussing here 
that biblical repentance clarifies our commitments. Maybe you need to clarify your commitment to your marriage. Maybe you need to clarify your commitment to be the kind of employee that God has called you to be. Maybe you need to clarify your commitment to be the pastor that God has called you to be. Maybe you need to clarify your commitment to be the friend or the disciple within the context of listening to Jesus' ministry that we are called to be. Maybe you need to clarify your commitment to pray, or maybe you need to clarify your commitment to support God's work. One way or the other, we're talking here about biblical repentance doesn't just say, I'm sorry, I did a few things wrong, I returned the things I stole. No, it goes deeper, and it says, I want to now put my back into that which I've been disrupting. I want to put my back into into the success of the central concerns of Almighty God. And we see this in David's life. Like with Daniel chapter 9, when his repentance begins to take shape, he focuses on himself, obviously not in a self-centered way, but in the necessary way of being so enveloped in personal conviction that it's all you really can deal with. And that's how real deep repentance works. It is so overwhelming. It is so deep and penetrating. Well, not being condemning, I suppose, unless you're the type to just be a Pharaoh and bring a hard heart, then I am not even speaking to that at the moment. But David, in verse 1 of Psalm 51, listen to the emphasis on his relationship with God. Nobody else. He's not thinking about the people of God, the plan of God, the place of God, the program of God. It's not time for that yet. He has to first face his own sin. We could state here that they who think they have repented and have done little work with their personal sin, but then just want to try to help God's church out in one way or the other and think that if I manifest a little bit of interest in God's church, then that should be the demonstration of my repentance, should it not? And I hope you can see with me that we have five principles here. We have a process that real repentance works through. And what I'm stating now is, no, such a person would not be beneficial to the church of Jesus Christ, to the progress of God's kingdom. Because until you realize the way in which you throw a wrench into what God is seeking to do in your family, in your relationship with yourself, and your son or daughter or you as a daughter with your mother or among spouses you can fill in the blank until you realize the way in which you are throwing a wrench into the plan of God for this aspect of your life to bring forth his glory then you will never be able to commit with clarity of heart and with genuine participation in the forwarding of that relationship So I hope you can hear with me that in verse 1 of Psalm 51, when David says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. And of course, we could continue to read Psalm 51, but we don't need to at this moment. I've established the fact that David begins with being wrapped up in his own personal relationship with God as it relates to his sin, just as did Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. But like with Daniel, 
In Psalm 51, the very last two verses express how David brings into his repentance session, his repentance communion, a clarification now of his commitments. Verse 18 of Psalm 51, David says, Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Let's stop there for a moment. There are those who study Psalm 51, and they conclude that verse 18 and 19 must be a textual emendation. It must be something that was added later to the psalm because it seems to be so abrupt. It seems to them to be so unlike the tenor and the drift of what David was saying previously. Why is he working through all this language of personal repentance? And then in verse 18, he gets to do good in thy good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. What in the world does that have to do with David's personal repentance? And the answer is everything. The answer is David recognizes the way in which his own sinful behavior threatened and indeed disrupted the progress and the blessing of Zion and the completion of the walls around Jerusalem. And he is clarifying his commitments and saying, no longer am I going to be looking out for my own blessing and benefits. I'm realigning my heart before you, Almighty God, for what matters to you, to the building of Zion and to the blessing of Jerusalem. And then verse 19 says, then, then, now that my heart is turned toward the progress of what matters to you, God, now that I'm in the fight with you, now that I'm going to put my shoulder and my energies and myself to the work of Zion and Jerusalem, And as a consequence, we're going to get this thing cleaned up. We're going to get this thing sorted out. We're going to get this church built. We're going to get divine order in place. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. In Old Testament language, which was all that was available to David, he is saying, I am interested now in pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. Then we will enter into what you're after. God seeks those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. He seeks a glorified church. He seeks a people that would worship Him in righteousness and in holiness. He seeks the progress of His kingdom. And to the extent that His people are distracted with personal interests and as a consequence entering into various forms of sin, we would to God and we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would come with such conviction as He did upon Daniel as he did upon David, even if it requires a form of chastening in order to bring the condition of heart to that place. But we do state that if God's people enter into an experience of repentance, they will identify their own sinful behavior, their own rebellion, their own choices over against God. But then they won't just go off to the side and watch the church from a distance and hope that it has success. 
They will put their back. They will put their energies. They will put their commitment into what matters to God. The glory of his name, the success of his church, the forwarding of his kingdom. They will clarify their commitments and do what they should have been doing from the start and take up what matters to God. And that will help them, of course, not to commit additional sins. Remember the language of Hosea and see what's associated with the repentance that Hosea speaks of in Hosea 14. We read there, O Israel, return, repent, shuv, return unto the Lord thy God, for you have fallen. Things are falling apart. Your marriage is falling apart. Your family is falling apart. Your friendships are falling apart. Your church is falling apart. Would to God the nation could hear this, even though I don't believe in a Christian nation as such. I'm not a post-millennialist, but nonetheless, still, would to God that culture could realize you're falling apart because you're seeking your own self-interests. For thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words. Go back to the truth. Go back to the word. Discover what matters to God. Turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all our iniquity. Cleanse me thoroughly of my sins. Wash me. Create in me a clean hands and a pure heart. Don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Receive us graciously. And then this, so will we render the calves of our lips That's exactly in line with what David says at the end of Psalm 51. Then we'll offer burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and bullocks on thine altar. It's still the language of, then we'll have a church that preaches your word and offers up spiritual sacrifice in the the form of worship and godly living. Let us repent and let us turn our hearts to what matters to God and pray for the success of his church. Pray for the success of his kingdom. Do the work of the Lord. That is what real repentance is all about. We read Psalm 69 in our scripture reading today. I want to show you this pattern in that psalm. I want you to see, first of all, in the fifth and sixth verses, that this psalm of David's is also engaged in personal repentance. He is acknowledging his sins. That comes in the fifth and sixth verse. That's at the beginning, toward the beginning of this relatively lengthy psalm. Listen to the language. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. This is David communing directly with God, feeling the conviction of his own sins, able to state that they are foolish. Verse 6, listen to this. This is what we're talking about. He's already starting to enter into this, and you'll see it come to full blossom at the very end of the psalm, just as we saw it come into full blossom at the end of Daniel 9 and at the end of Psalm 51. This is why we end, dear brothers and sisters, this series of teachings on making repentance clear with this principle, not just for utilitarian reasons, but because it is the spiritually proper place to end. That is to say, when you have truly repented, a clarity will enter into your soul, a freedom, a consciousness that you are forgiven will come about. You will sense the clean hands and the pure heart. A new joy will be restored to you. But the evidence that it's all real is that then your heart will commit itself to that which you were neglecting before. You will commit yourself to the thing that matters to God. 
God that you were sinning against, that you were disrupting, that you were throwing your negativity into. You will commit yourself to God and you will feel what we're about to read as expressed by David. You will feel the regret of anything that you did that would cause any problem to that which matters to God. Well, listen to verse 6 of Psalm 69. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Oh, a real deep biblical repentance looks back into the nation of Israel, sees the sanctuary desolate, the people of God scattered. And when one realizes I participated in this sin, it says, oh, I'm so convicted of my foolishness. Oh God, don't let my sins bring about these problems in this part of your plan, Lord God, in my family, among my children, within this church, in my relationships at work. Oh God. I don't want to see me introducing this awfulness into what matters to you. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Now we know that at one level there's no avoiding that. Do you understand what I mean? If you've sinned into a relationship, then you've brought about problems, disorder, a lack of blessing a lack of the fulfillment of the beauty of God's plan. You brought that about, but you can repent. That's what's so beautiful. You can identify your sin and repent. And if you carry with that a clarification of your commitments, now I am committed to the beauty of your ideal in this particular relationship, in this particular domain of God's eternal plan. And one of the things that you will feel is, oh, I feel such a trepidation. I feel such shame about the way in which I've messed up what you originally ordained. If Adam and Eve were in this mode of repentance, they would be like, oh God, please restore the garden. Please let us go back in or better yet, restore our souls. I don't want to pass on to my sons the negativity and the brokenness and the fallenness and the corruption of my own life. Oh God, I want to recommit to what you called us to be, to glorify you, to, to um, take dominion over this earth in the interest of the glory of your name, Lord God. Let me get back to that, is how it would look in their life. Now, when we look at the end of Psalm 69, we saw how it begins by David focusing on his own relationship with God. But even there, in verse 6, he's beginning to think about how he has affected others and how he has affected the people of God and the plan of God. Recall with me, he's there. Oh, he's saying, let not them that wait on thee. There's some good people. There's some wonderful Christians that are in this church or that are in Christendom at large and my sinful behavior and my compromises and my fleshly choices, they are disrupting what God would otherwise do. And David is feeling this and he ends in verse 35 of Psalm 69 with the same kind of language with which he ended Psalm 51 with the same kind of language with which Daniel ended his prayer session and Daniel chapter 9 and my dear brothers and sisters it is the way that every truly repentant soul ends their time of repentance before God they don't end by focusing on themselves and saying now bring back my place in the church now bring back my prosperity 
Now give me health again. Now make me important in the way that I always hoped for, but I didn't get it like Esau. And now I want the blessing, Lord. That's my form of repentance. I want the blessing, Lord. Bring, you know, bring it back. No, brothers and sisters, I'm hoping that you're seeing David is saying, verse 35, he's concerned about Zion, the city that God chose, the program that God's heart has been on for the centuries. For ourselves, it's the church. It's the work of his kingdom. It's the beautiful model of his family and how marriages are designed to glorify the relationship of Christ in the church. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. This is a spiritually panoramic vision that is in keeping with David turning his attention off of his personal interests that got him into his foolish decisions. And now he's clarifying his commitments and he's taking a higher stance as he's standing now with God in this clear form of repentance. And he's looking out and he's seeing the panoramic vision of what matters to God. And that is the success of Zion, the cities of Judah prospering. In other words, bringing forth or bringing forth the program of redemption. It's so interesting that in the middle of this transaction in Psalm 69, say from verses 5 and 6 to the end of the psalm in verses 35 and 36, we have this central emotional and heartfelt commitment expressed in the ninth verse, which says, For the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. One translation translates the ninth verse with these words. My strong love for your temple completely controls me. When people insult you, it hurts me. That is something of a paraphrase. But I must say, with respect to what we're reflecting on this afternoon, I find those to be very beautiful words. And they certainly are in keeping with the sentiment of the ninth verse, which, as we will see before we close this afternoon, is a messianic statement that was true of the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way in which he was so focused and so committed, not to his own self-interest, but to the success of what God wanted. And I'm trying to say that you can see in the statement of the ninth verse why the transition went from personal conviction about my own sins, which is highly important, but ended with focusing on the success of what matters to God, the bigger items, the church, the family, the nation, the relationship, the glory of God's name so that, for example, you don't take somebody to court before the unbeliever, whereas in the past you did because you wanted your money back. But now you've repented and now you're going to commit yourself to what matters to God because you have seen how you've soiled that witness and it bothers you. And you feel, oh, if any of my brothers and sisters who love you were disturbed and unedified by my behavior, oh God, forgive me. I want to commit myself to what matters to you now. And that's why the translation is the way it is. And I read it again. My strong love for your temple 
At one point when David was sitting with Bathsheba and conspiring to get Uriah killed, he wasn't focused on God's temple. I know it wasn't built yet, but later he did recommit himself and he went about doing everything he could to build God's temple. You follow what I'm saying? He was looking at his own bodily temple and what he could do with his own bodily temple instead of looking at God's temple. But now that repentance is clear, he's committing himself to what matters to God. My strong love for your temple completely controls me. It eats me up. It keeps me focused day after day. I wake up. I work through the day. I go to bed at night. I wake up in the night seasons. And what I'm thinking about is what matters to God. And I'm walking away from what matters to me. When people insult you, when they don't care about your church, when they don't care about relationships and glorifying God in these relationships, when they bicker and fight and they're disrespectful and they're betraying and all these sorts of things and they call themselves Christians, when they insult you, it hurts me. And I want to be an advocate for that which bring, brings glory to God's name is what we're reading in Psalm 69. I'm going to give you another example out of David's life. This we will deal with a bit more succinctly. In the occasion when David sinned by taking a census of the nation of Israel and thereby deriving the power of his military, we won't digress into sorting out the various things that one would speak of if one was teaching on that um, aspect of David's life. I want to simply draw you to a principle within that context. So in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 17, David here is repenting for the sin of requesting this census. And we read, And David spoke unto the Lord when he saw the angel who was smiting the children of Israel as chastening because of his sin. And he said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. And unlike Judas, he didn't throw down his sword on the threshing floor and then just walk away and go hang himself. He didn't just check out and say, I've sinned. I've messed up this family. I've messed up this church. I don't know what to do now. I guess I'll just quit and take a seat somewhere. His heart is turned to God's people and what will become of them. And how will we bring this nation forward? What about your plan, God? He says, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Do you see what he's saying? He's literally saying, let me take the brunt of it. Don't let it disrupt the success of your church, Lord. If nothing else, Lord God, I plead with you, please let your central concerns go forward. Let your church be successful. And you could broaden that into any domain of God's concerns. And so in the New Testament, when James tells us in the 16th verse of the 5th chapter, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another that ye may be healed. I assure you in the Greek, we can discern between the second person singular and the second person plural. In the English language, we use you for the singular and the plural. You understand that. If I say, let me give this book to you, 
I could be offering it to an individual or I could be offering it to several people. But in the Greek, there's no ambiguity. And in this verse, it is the subjunctive second person plural of the word for healed. Confess your faults one to another. Pray one for another so that your church can be healed. Do it because you have a concern for the project of God so that everybody can be healed. In other words, confess your sin because you look around the church and you say, but these sheep, what have they done? I want to clarify this. I want to get this right before God. The effectual, fervent prayer of righteous men and women along those lines, as was Daniel's prayer, that's what's going to avail much, brothers and sisters. That's the kind of repentance that's going to avail much and turn things around. Think of the principle that we're given in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that speaks to this understanding. Verse 26, whether one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and members in particular. Reflect with me again to Judas. If Judas had taken to heart that he is one member, if nothing else among Jesus' chosen twelve, and his actions are going to cause the entire group to suffer, as despondent and disheartened as he felt because of his sin. And I understand that we go through those feelings when we sin. At some level, you might say it's unavoidable, at least with respect to a battle, because the devil's going to try to attack you at every point. And when you have sinned as a pattern of life, he's going to try to bring discouragement and defeatedness into your soul. But if you really repent, you don't land on self-pity and despondency. You look at the family. You look at the church. You look at the name and glory of God. You look at that which you and others have been disrupting for generations and generations since the sin of Adam and Eve. And you say to yourself, I'm repenting. I am going to clarify my commitments. I don't want the innocent sheep of God to suffer because of my sins. And unlike Judas, you don't just confess what you did that was wrong and then check out and go hang yourself. What Judas should have done is said, because of my behavior, I'm going to bring suffering on the entire group of the apostles with Jesus most centrally as our leader. And now that I'm repentant, I want to do something about that. Do you hear what I'm saying? I want to put my back to work. I want to commit the last bit of my energy, even if I am condemned to die for betraying the innocent blood. Maybe I should be the one who is crucified instead of Christ. But Judas didn't operate in that understanding that his behavior affects everybody else. He was just concerned about what was happening to him. And he had regret. But regret is not biblical repentance. Regret alone is not biblical repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12 says the same sort of thing. When you sin against the brethren, you sin against Christ. Therefore, when we come to a conviction about our own personal sins... There'll be an experience within which we will just be wrapped up in how we, before God alone, as we've said in these teachings, it gets things right with God first. 
You're so focused on what God is saying to you. It's all that you can manage at the moment. That's true. Praise the Lord. That's part of the process. But we're seeing here in this fifth point that eventually it becomes clear to your soul that no man liveth unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. We're members one of another. What I have done has affected others. And it's not just a matter of going back to church and telling the priest, oh, I did this, I did that, I want to make restitution this way or that way. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about settling scores. We're not talking about keeping a tab on what everybody has done. We're talking about a condition of the heart, brothers and sisters. I'd rather Judas kept the 30 pieces of silver if he hadn't given it back yet because he just didn't get there and make a beeline to the Lord Jesus Christ and get at his feet and say, I'm so sorry. What can I do, Jesus, to set this right? And then putting his heart behind everything and anything he could do to set the plan of God back on track. Of course, I understand that God is sovereign over all and he will nonetheless bring forward his purposes. But dear brothers and sisters, if that's how we relate to our own personal sins as they affect once again our family relationships, our church relationships, any relationship, dear brothers and sisters, maybe even our own bodies. Maybe you're sinning against your own body. Your body is to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you really sin, you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to get with the program and get this body straightened out so we can glorify God instead of just doing a little bit differently without really seeing, wait a minute. The bigger picture here is my body is supposed to glorify God somehow or other. So let's figure out what that should look like. Let me get with the program. We see in the life of Paul, this same principle. What you do affects other people. It affects the plan of God. That's what Daniel was recognizing and speaking about. That's how he ends his prayer. He speaks about God's city, God's mountain, God's sanctuary. And at the very end, he speaks about the glory of God's name. And in the life and experience of who you know as the Apostle Paul, he learned this very early in his experience with Almighty God. While he was on the road to Damascus, seeking his own will, doing whatever he felt like, not thinking about how this would disrupt the plan of God, not really caring. He had his own arrogant views of what was right and what was wrong, and he was throwing his weight around literally like a bull in a china shop. And while I know God is sovereign, nonetheless, that's not the thing with which God convicted Paul. He didn't say, Paul, don't worry about it. I'm sovereign. What you're doing will not be successful. My church will prevail nonetheless. No, God said to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you fighting against me? Why in your religious nonsense are you disrupting the beautiful plan of God that has been in operation for millennia, Paul? And in the fullness of time, Christ has come and I'm seeking now to build my church and you fancy yourself as being a sound Jewish theologian as a matter of fact you're fighting and throwing a wrench into everything Jesus is seeking to do Saul why are you fighting against the deep purposes of God you're in sin Saul and Saul was so convicted about that reality that among other things he says 
the following in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. And this is how he looked at himself because of what he had done. So much like Peter, when Peter repented and then recommitted himself and said, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, he might have almost said, help my love. I want to be the one who loves you. I don't want to fail you. I want to commit myself to you, Jesus. And then he kept at it and kept at it. And he finished his course with joy, brothers and sisters. He finished his course as an example of a solid believer because he committed himself. Like Jesus said, when you were young, you did what you felt like. But when you get older, you're going to commit yourself to the purpose of God in your repentance. When you convert, then go show people what it is to commit to the purposes of God is effectively what Jesus said. But Paul says of himself, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not even meat. It's not even proper for me to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. What you're seeing is a manifestation of the principle we're talking about. How would a man like Paul honestly say, because this is coming out of his belly, out of his bones, he really feels this way, and for good reason. I'm the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be an apostle. I was the one who was fighting, and almost it seemed to be it was almost successful. I made havoc of the churches. What he's saying is, I'm now a man who sees the centrality of the purposes of God. I am now a man who's committed to the glory of Jesus' name and his his kingdom. I'm no longer committed to being a Pharisee of the Pharisees, my religious reputation, my various opinions. I've, I've, I've called, I've, all that is done to me. I seek one thing and one thing only. Everything goes off to the side. I just seek the glory and purposes of God. Those big program items, that's what I commit to. And the fact that I once fought against those big programmatic items of God's plan makes me feel like I'm the worst one out there. And that's just a mode of repentance, you see, because he clarified his commitment. He said, this is the man that has sinned against his wife and gone married another woman or the woman who has sinned against her husband. And now either of the two, whoever needs the adjustment, they are recommitting to the covenant of marriage and saying, this is for the glory of Jesus' church. I once sought my own way. I'm the least husband in the world because I did not value what God had given me. Thomas Manton, we've heard from him before. He is a Puritan. And he says about Psalm 51, verses 18 and 19, that we've looked at previously in the study. He says, How does it come about that David who was in the depth of private humiliation and repentance, so suddenly to fall upon the case of the people of God. He says the church. How did he shift so suddenly while he was in the depth of private repentance? How did he shift so suddenly to Jerusalem and Zion and the people of God and building the walls of Jerusalem? There was a special reason for annexing adding, moving into this place within repentance. There was a special reason for annexing this request to his own private complaints and confessions because the offense and scandal and mischief 
that he had done through his sin to the church, to the people of God, to the purposes of God by his own fall. And so he seeks to make amends. He prays the more earnestly. Let not Zion fare the worse for my sake. From thence observe that the sins of a particular person often brings mischief upon the whole community. David had made a breach in the walls of God's protection and left them exposed and more vulnerable to the judgments of God. Therefore, he turns his attention to Zion and the people of God and says, God, do good to Jerusalem, to your sanctuary, essentially to the things that my sins expose to harm. I now turn myself to those very things and I pray for its success and its strengthening. You might remember with me the account of Achan's sin. I'm not going to get very far into this account in this study, but as I work my way to a close this afternoon, I do want to remind you of Achan's sin, for it fits into this pattern of one individual's sins affecting the community and the way in which the resolution of the sin that was committed is only achieved when attention is brought back to the community and the success of the community and the way in which this sin affected the community. That's a very important part of making repentance clear. This is found in Joshua 7. The chapter is introduced by telling us about this trespass that, occur, that occurred in Israel because of the banned items, the accursed things that were taken by Achan, the son of Carmi. But when we get down to verse 16, we're going to be reading here of Joshua bringing a resolution to this matter after he had been mourning before God because of Israel's lack of success in war. And God told him it's because there is sin in the camp. And Joshua gets up early in the morning, verse 16, and he brings Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. He's going to discover who is the individual that is troubling Israel. Verse 17, and he brought the family of Judah and he took the family of the Zarhites, one of the families within the tribe of Judah, and he brought the family of the Zarhites man by man and Zabdi was taken and he brought his household man by man and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken Verse 19, watch what happens. Joshua says unto Achan, effectively, Achan, you are clearly the one who has sinned. God has just pointed you out. If there is going to be any hope for your soul, which I hope is the case with you, Achan, no doubt was in Joshua's heart. If there's any hope for your soul, I cannot promise you that you will not receive a chastening because God has directed us that this must be dealt with, this flagrant sin. 
But if you're going to repent, then you will do so by not simply feeling sorry for yourself and for how this might affect your family. You are going to turn to the most central fundamental thing that overarches all of our lives. You will turn to the glory of God. You will turn your heart to the single simple thing of I simply want to glorify God, which is the very basic element of all of God's program, everything that God is concerned about that was not on your to-do list. It wasn't in your purview. It wasn't in your concern. When you sinned in the way that you did, you weren't thinking about the glory of God. And yet God teaches us when you pray, the first thing you pray about is the glory of God's name. And so Joshua says to Achan, my son, see how endearing this is? I do think there's a empathy and a, and a kindness to this, as severe as it needs to be. He says, my son, give, I pray thee, glory to the God of Israel and make confession unto him. Don't hide any longer. Don't make this about you. Your best hope is come out with it and glorify God. Set things right before God. Tell me what you have done. Hide it not from me. And I believe Achan took his advice. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Against the Lord God of Israel. And thus, and thus have I done. In other words, he told the whole story. It's summarized in the text for your reading that uh, he told the story. He said, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I what? I broke the 10th commandment. I didn't care about the name of Yahweh as deeply as I should. I coveted them. And I took them and I hid them in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. Joshua sent messengers and they ran onto the tent and behold, Achan was confessing and telling the truth. It was hid in his tent and the silver was under it. In other words, Achan, in other words, Achan did not just break the 10th commandment. He also broke the ninth commandment. He was bearing false witness. He was acting like, I didn't steal anything. I didn't take anything of the accursed. Because otherwise, he would have just brought it out. If it was all fine, he was lying. He was bearing false witness to what his actions actually were. Verse 23, And they took them out of the midst of the tent, the items, and brought them unto Joshua and unto all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters, his oxen, his mules, his sheep, his tent, and all they had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor or the valley of trouble. And Joshua said, why have you troubled us? Why did you single individual trouble us? That's the relationship. When you sin against the brethren, you sin against all. It was one man who committed one sin. And Joshua said, but you troubled us. He said, the Lord shall trouble thee this day. And here was the divine discipline that God had ordered. It may seem harsh to you. And certainly in a new covenant situation, we don't do this any longer. But here it is for your eyes to see. And all Israel 
stoned him with stones and burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore, the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor, which is an assonantal word with Achan. And there's a play on words going in various directions here, which I won't digress into. But the whole thing is about trouble was brought into Israel because of one man's sin. But I don't know if you think it's illegitimate when I state that I have hope in my heart that God forgave Achan. And he is not a good example. He's used in the scriptures as one who, whose example we should not follow. But what I'm trying to say to you is I have hope in my heart because Achan gave glory to God. Are you seeing that with me? He didn't obfuscate. He didn't seek out his own interest. He turned to the glory of God and he said, Joshua, I hear what you're saying. I'm repentant and I understand your point. And yes, to the extent that I can, I want to get this right. I want to put my back into forwarding God's people. I don't want to see God's armies unsuccessful in the battle of I. I want to see this going forward. And I realize now I did a foolish thing when I sinned and I threw a wrench into the whole program. And I am so sorry. I'm going to come out with it entirely and tell you exactly what I did. And if he could have, I'm quite confident, he would have said, Joshua, put me in the front of the battle. And Joshua would have said, Achan, you might die. And he would have said, I am committed to bringing forward this work. I sinned against the Lord. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. Oops, I'm not worthy to be called a soldier of Israel. I'm the least of all of them. Put me in the front. I'll trust my God. But I am committed to this work, Lord, going forward. As it was with his case, as it was with his him. He wasn't granted that opportunity. But I like to think, and I think I have some reason to think this is true, that even though he was stoned and his body was burned with fire, that I believe his spirit will be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he was handed over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh, his soul, his spirit will be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. For after all, Nadab and Abihu in some similar way at some level. They offered strange fire before God and as a consequence threatened the success of the nation of Israel. And you might remember that fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spake saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me and before all the people will I be glorified. Do you hear how that's in keeping with what we're teaching? That God is saying, I have these two sons of Aaron that have a religious zeal without knowledge. They were not being rebellious. They were not intending to sin egregiously. I can't digress right now, but we've taught on this in the past. In Leviticus chapter 10, when this occurs with Nadab and Abihu, they were young. They were zealous. They saw the fire of God come down. They thought this was the thing to do, but they were incorrect. And what everyone was learning is that the central purposes of God are more important than any of us individually. 
individually. That's why the church is more important than your family and then, or than your marriage, brothers and sisters. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what God is teaching in Leviticus 10. He devoured through fire the two children of Aaron and told him, don't you even manifest sorrow over it because we need to bring forward the reality of how glorious God is to be in the midst of his people. I remind you that um, about 400 years after Achan's sin, we're in the time frame when David is interested in bringing the ark to a tent that he had erected in Jerusalem. The rest of the furniture was yet in Shiloh, if I remember correctly. But in any event, David wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And I'm simply going to remind you that there were two other children named Uzzah and Ahio. They were the sons of Abinadad, who lived in Kirjath-Jairim. And the ark had been residing there for over 40 years because it landed there before the rise of King Saul. And King Saul ruled for 40 years. And now David comes into kingship and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. What I'm saying is for 40 years, Abinadad and his children related to the Ark of the Covenant with sufficient degree of respect and deference that their family prospered and they lived all that time. But David wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. And as we read, because of David's poor preparation and using a new cart, the ark looked like it was going to fall. And one of the boys named Uzzah put his hand out to catch it. And because he touched this holy item, then God smote him for his error. And he died before the ark of God. Now, These are short excursions, partly because they accent and heighten the concept of how we need to be concerned about the glory of God. If that's the only examples I gave you, that might strike you as a weird way to make that point without further conversation about those various Situations, And I would grant you that. Meaning, don't you want to sort this out a little bit? Because it makes God look like a tyrant. And I'm not here to sort that all out. I'm here mostly to show you that Nadab and Abihu died by fire. Uzzah was smitten by the Lord. But I think they got into heaven, wouldn't you? And it's just my simple way of saying, I think Achan also likely got into heaven. I'm showing, if you're thinking, but brother, he was burned up by fire. How could he possibly get into heaven? Doesn't that seem like an utter judgment? I'm saying, Nadab and Abihu were devoured by fire from God himself. Uzzah was smitten. I don't believe for a moment he's not in heaven. His heart was for the Lord. He wasn't a rebel. But this is how serious it is to understand and be clear about your commitments to God and his purposes. Psalm 27 captures this commitment with this language. This is David's language as well. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell personally in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, the temple that is available for anyone else who also wants to seek after God. In other words, 
Psalm 27 was not spoken when David was looking at Bathsheba and that was the condition of his heart or when his heart was in that condition of looking after Bathsheba. He could not have said then, one thing have I desired, your purpose is God, the beauty of your ways. You're following what I'm saying? He had other desires that he was focused on that were mixed into his life. But at the end of Psalm 51, like with Daniel and like with the remnant community, in keeping with Daniel's repentance, they had to realign themselves to one thing in the language of Psalm 122, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They wanted peace to be in God's walls. They wanted prosperity in God's palaces. They wanted their brethren and their companions to prosper. That's what they were doing. That's what I'm talking about when I say that biblical repentance clarifies its commitments to what matters to God. Remember I said that Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm that speaks to the heart of Jesus. And you can see this in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleanses the temple, when he visits the temple at the first Passover of his public ministry. Yes, there is another cleansing of the temple toward the end of his public ministry recorded in Matthew 21. But that which occurs in John chapter 2 is the first cleansing. And simply stated, Jesus comes to the temple of God. He comes to the house of God. He comes to the thing that matters to God. And he's so troubled at the way in which what matters to God is being abused and being so trivially dealt with and so casually corrupted. He makes a scourge of small cords and effectively what I'm saying is he does something about it. He manifests with a clear set of amazing actions where his commitments are. It's utterly clear. I am committed to what matters to God. I'm committed to my father's house. I'm committed to the program of the forwarding of God's plan that the temple is very central within. In our day, it would be a desire to cleanse the churches, to cleanse our families, to cleanse our bodies. And and most directly, I would say, in keeping with the language of Jerusalem and the sanctuary and the temple of the Old Testament, I know that there's a discontinuity between Israel and the church. I cannot speak about that at the moment. I am not a full-blown dispensationalist, but I do recognize a distinction between Israel and the church. That's why I don't call Israel the church or just call the church Israel. But what I'm saying is in keeping with the themes of the scriptures, the way in which this manifests today, as we're reading and thinking about what Jesus did, it is the action, it is the zeal, it is the commitment of one who looks into the church of Jesus Christ and sees the things that are out of divine order, sees the corruptions that are in the midst of God's church and does something about it. That's the repentant life, brothers and sisters. That's the life that's ceased seeking its own things and is ashamed of the foolishness of that which they have attended to that has messed up God's plan and there's a zeal in their heart for God's 
house. It's so interesting, my dear brothers and sisters, the extent to which Jesus was committed to what mattered to God for as long as there was a possibility that things could be worked out. There comes a time when, because of the sins of various individuals, as was the case in Achan's life, for example, there is no remedy. There came a time in Israel's experience that Jeremiah himself, Ezekiel himself, Daniel himself, they could not pray through a victory apart from a season of chastening and dispersion and desolation within the children of Israel. But nonetheless, those that have a heart for God like we're speaking about, they will plead to the last moment. They will put their back in week after week after week for the success of God's church, for the success of various relationships. Give it everything they've got to try to bring it forward to glorify God. And what I'm saying to you is in the life of Christ, I told you, he cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and he also cleansed the temple at the end of his ministry, but when they did not respond, he ended up saying, this no longer is my father's house. This is your house, and I leave your house onto you desolate. As long as this church, as long as this family, as long as this marriage, as long as this friendship has the possibility of being God's church, God's family, God's marriage, God's friendship, glorify His name. I'm going to fight for it. I'm going to seek God's purposes to be forward. I'm going to pray for it. I'm going to put my back into it. I'm going to try to make it better than it was before. I'm going to put my energies into bringing it forward. Understanding that a time could come when God says, there's nothing more that I can do. But I'm trying to say that in the life of Jesus, we see this example, even though in his case, obviously there was no sin in his own life that he had to deal with first. So we skip all of that, but we still get to the place that Daniel gets to in the end of Daniel 9. Well, the section of his prayer within Daniel 9 and where David gets in Psalm 51 and Psalm 69. In other words, that's what we've sinned against. That's why we have to get back to it. We have to get back to the place that Jesus never left. And that is having a zeal for God's house, for his purposes, for his name, for his kingdom. This is what the churches lack. This is what individual Christians lack. They lack a zeal for the fundamental things that God is concerned about. And they get distracted into their own petty little interests instead of locking themselves into the commitment of that which glorifies God. Jesus, for as long as the temple could be termed or viewed as or fit within the category of his father's house, he kept pressing for its repentance. But as I told you, the time came when they had sinned their way out of the day of grace and Jesus said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Well, in closing, let this be a warning as well as an opportunity to all of our hearts because the church of Jesus Christ is presently the house of God. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6 says it is. It says, Christ is a son over his own house. Whose house are we? 
And I would say that that most directly speaks to the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, over which Christ is the head. We are the house of God that Jesus wants us to focus on. That is the attention of Jesus' love and Jesus' interest. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing firm unto the end, and verse 7 introduces the need for us to repent, it says, Wherefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. And so, dear brothers and sisters, as I believe that this church, as I believe that your marriages, as I believe that your families, as I believe that your relationships with your children, and if you are a child out of fellowship with your parents because they don't walk with God, then I would say to you, as I believe that your relationship with your parents can yet be redeemed, can yet be cleansed, can yet have their walls built up, can yet be brought into a place of prosperity, then I say we join with Daniel. We repent of our personal sins. We come before the Lord with words taken out of the Scriptures and identify the way in which we have disrupted the beautiful plan of God and all of these different dimensions of life. And we come before the Lord as Daniel himself did and we say, O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do, defer not for your own sake, O my God, for this city, for my family, for my church, for your people, for that which is called by thy name. I'm committing myself to that which you care about. I'm praying with David in Psalm 51 and verse 18. Do good in thy pleasure unto Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. I close with the beautiful statement of Charles Spurgeon. David had done mischief by his sin and had, as it were, pulled down the walls of Jerusalem. He therefore implores the Lord to undo the evil and establish his church. God can make his cause to prosper. And in answer to prayer, he will do so. Without his building, we labor in vain. Therefore are we the more earnest and constant in prayer. There is surely no grace in us if we do not feel for the church of God and take a lasting interest in its welfare.